0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Joanna Zelinska in an episode about her new book from MIT Press titled The Perception Machine, Our Photographic Future Between the Eye and AI. Welcome to the show, Joanna.
1: Well, thank you, Nathan, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be talking to you.
2: Where did you get the initial idea for the perception machine?
1: I've been working on the concept of perception for a long time in relation to the idea of vision, of how humans and machines see the world. And the Perception Machine book is a follow-up to my 2017 volume I did for the MIT Press called Non-Human Photography. And in that earlier book, I explored how our vision today is organized by machines, big and small, and how we all live photographically, but also how photographs are increasingly being produced uh, by machines. And in that sense, the idea of non-human photography was exploring imaging, which was being done not of humans, not by humans, and not for humans, uh, encompassing things such as you know, cameras and on satellites high in the sky, but also QR codes, uh, geological imprinting, and other forms of imaging that either bypasses humans or involves them as one kind of multiple agents. So with Perception Machine, I tried to follow up with some of the intimations from that earlier study, but to focus on what's happening around. Uh, the concept of machine vision and how, on the one hand, machines are being trained to see like humans, but on the other hand, we humans are constantly being positioned to act like machines. We are seeing and producing more and more images. We are being shaped by images, from you know receiving hundreds and thousands of images on our social media, through seeing advertising, publicity on round, revolving and uh, uh, colourful screens in urban spaces, airports, through to uh, being exposed to the databases of machine learning, which are kind of uh, an underbelly of the contemporary knowledge base, contemporary epistemology. So I was interested in that dual relationship between vision and, uh, and humans and the role of machines in the constitution of both us and our knowledge about the world, uh, and that knowledge coming to us with and through images.
2: In the age of social media and user generated content, would you say that we are all artists now?
1: That's a very interesting way of putting it. And in some sense, yes, and we could play here with Gramsci's idea that we are all intellectuals now. But at the same time, we might be all both artists and intellectuals, but not everyone is interpolated to play that role in society. So even though there are people who are you know, remunerated, who are paid for being artists uh, through having gallery representation, through having a certain access to different forms of technology and different forms of um, uh, recognition through the gallery circuits, through exhibitions, uh, through sales. That that creative impulse is, of course, available to everyone. You can say that uh, with technology, with cameras now being available at everyone's reach to, to produce both still and moving images, we can all exercise that creative dimension, creative drive, if you like, much more easily, much more freely. But at the same time, we're also aware of the, of the production, overproduction perhaps, of different media, different images, and what this actually means for the recognition of the value of artistic production. That issue has become even more pertinent now in the age of generative AI, where not just all humans can produce a creativity, can produce so-called art, uh, creative expression with their devices through or with the help of their devices, but also where machines having learned from human uh, human outputs can output other products, and lowering the value, the price of a lot of creative professions, you know, script writers, uh, image makers, stage designers, and such like. So all these concerns um, also shape the, the kind of debate in the book, and also the idea of the photographic future, which I'm talking about, and which is the book's subtitle.
2: How do we decide if a piece of media art or a YouTube clip is any good?
1: Um, so that's a question, a provocation, which, um, I use in my teaching and I think I mentioned it in the book as well. And I relate it as well to, um, a book by Alexandra Juhas, uh, Published by the MIT Press and uh, uh, titled "Learning from YouTube," and it's an interesting provocation because I don't think there's going to be an objective answer to this, of course. But the question itself is interesting because it pushes us to ask questions about cultural value, about what we value, how we determine um, uh, popularity, and obviously we know how YouTube determines popularity. Well, it's terms of views and eyeballs and clicks which are you know then directly translated into the capture of attention of a certain sector so what other criteria can we use as educators as artists as journalists as professionals in other fields is attention and you know the capture of attention and the only the only criterion is monetization the most important you know criterion for, for, for that so to pose that question uh, as part of the kind of discussion about perception today is also to invite different sets of values beyond both kind of monetization monetization and popularity. And to try and get people involved with a study of, kind of popular culture, which happens these days, obviously on not just social media, but kind of platform media such as YouTube or TikTok. And to still keep raising that question rather than just dismiss uh, them uh, point blank as the kind of mindless uh, uh, inoculation of our kind of society and mindless annihilation of our sensory perception.
2: Okay. What about combining critical thinking about the media with also making interesting or entertaining media? Is that possible? Um,
1: well, th- I think it's it's certainly possible. I myself, I consume or, or watch and uh, engage with a lot of media that I find both interesting and entertaining. So it certainly is possible. So obviously, um, eh, there are some things that can be interesting that don't have to be entertaining. You know, you can think about some art installations or documentaries about war and violence and things. They can be interesting. They don't have to be entertaining. You can think about things that are entertaining that are not interesting but they serve a different purpose you know allow us to switch off do um i think there's a broader question which we already touched upon earlier about the conditions of the production of valuable work and valuable in terms of cultural recognition You know, who decides that something is valuable? It used to be the critics, you know, the New York Times, the Guardian, the, the, um, you know, so-called authorities. Uh, And obviously, in in, uh, capitalist societies we live in, it's increasingly the market that decides. And even though the critics still serve a certain role, they often work together with the vagaries of the market and the idea of the sell sales, so and you can't just say it was the people who decide because obviously people's tastes are shaped by the kind of marketing, kind of industry, the PR, the, the things that the produce that gets promoted. What's changed now with the kind of algorithmic culture we live in. Is that our our tastes? The idea of you know uh, something becoming interesting or you know going viral which is an extreme case of this interestingness, uh, is that it's increasingly algorithmic. So our tastes are produced algorithmically through, you know, from focus groups, which are a way of averaging taste to uh, then produce, you know, films, that are supposedly going to land well with an audience through to, uh, you know, be Netflix or Disney or other platforms tracking our preferences and giving us more of what we like or uh, analyzing connections between our tastes and producing that kind of culture uh, in relation to our own kind of feedback loop of taste, attention, perception.
2: What about the term perception machine? Where did the term perception machine come from?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, The perception machine is a coinage of uh, a few ideas and terms. So on on the one hand, the term, the the title of the book is a, a transposition of a well-known book by a French philosopher uh, Paul Virilio called *The Vision Machine*, and in *The Vision Machine*, Virilio analyzed, uh, you know, a situation from about you know two, three, four decades ago. although he goes back all the way to the First World War and the early kind of modernity of Europe and the broadly kind of Western world and the transformation of the way we see. With and through machines, and then Virilio, in writing, kind of, he's already talking about processes of artificial intelligence in its earlier guises in the kind of seventies and eighties, when the research was still very nascent, and trying to analyze how you know processes of surveillance, in for example, in courts or in you know through police. Uh, uh, capture of people's movements and behaviors are shaping the way citizens live in the world, move their bodies through the world. So, And Virilio, the philosopher of of technology, was very concerned about these transformations, realizing that we were losing something, our own freedom, our sense of bodily independence, uh, and through that encroaching power of machines. So my title takes Virilio's vision machine and takes it into the age of machine and computer vision. But there is also uh, in the subtitle, "Our Photographic Future Between the Eye and AI," uh, there is an echo of another philosopher of technology, Willem Flusser, who was talking about the future of different media, and he wrote this book called "Does Writing Have a Future?" and Virilio, who himself had written, sorry, uh, Flusser, who himself had written a lot of books, says, "No, writing doesn't have a future. You can call it a philosophical joke and set." you know, an example of uh, auto-irony. But at the same time, he was aware that our, already writing in the 80s as well, that our society was moving more and more towards a more kind of image-based culture, moving away from linear text, from reading big books, which is something we're experiencing today, we can see how students read, we can see how academics read, you know, more quickly, we read more increasingly like machines, uh, looking for keywords, uh, scanning texts, uh, uh, and our kind of epistemology, or in other words, our knowledge horizon and sense of being in the world and having a kind of knowledge capture of it is increasingly produced by images, you know videos, kind of YouTube, uh, again advertising, Instagram things like that. So the perception machine, our photographic future, is a flusser virilio mix. The title is a flusser virilio mix, but it also introduces different senses of that concept of the perception machine. So you can say the perception machine is a metaphor, It's a certain proposition that we are now living in what I'm calling the perception machines. I'm calling our world, our modern world, in which processes of vision, uh, computer vision, machine vision are so uh, predominant. I'm calling that arrangement the perception machine. And I'm playing here with another group of philosophers, uh, um, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, and their idea of machine, which uh, they pushed in their writings beyond just, uh, you know, Machines understood literally to also encapsulate social mechanisms. I was also engaging with the sense, you know, the sense of the machine being a camera, and uh, different cameras capturing our existence uh, uh, from different angles and in different configurations. I was also talking about the human appar- visual apparatus and cognitive apparatus: the eye, the brain, often being understood through the history of neuroscience. In machinic terms. Um, and uh, I was then also trying to kind of play this idea that the state, the nation state, uh, these days becomes a camera, uh, becomes a, an image capture device which produces citizens. So there is there are some there is something ominous, something dangerous about the perception machine, but I'm also trying to look. Within that sense of enclosure that the perception machine has created for us, I'm trying to look for openings, for moments of freedom, for moments of creativity, for moments of uh, opening, if you like.
2: Can you provide an overview of the main concepts discussed in the perception machine and their relevance to our understanding of photography?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so the main concepts would be, You could say that the book deals with uh, how humans are produced by images, while also themselves producing images. So uh, I recognise, on the one hand, that we are constantly photographing and being photographed, but we are also feeding machines, um, you know, databases of machine learning with our images and that creates a kind of new horizon, a new set of arrangements, which I'm calling their perception machine. And I'm recognizing that something has changed for both, you know, for humans in the way we see the world, but also that increasing processes of machine vision used in anything from self-driving cars, which may or may not happen, you in- Yet, you know, he's hearing about the imminent, then others say, oh, no, no, they won't happen for a while, too many accidents. But they are used in lots of other devices, in logistics, in, you know, bigger warehouses. And uh, so, um, where perception is also being reconfigured and a machinic perception functions, is a function of the operations of the modern, not just modern state, but also modern industry. So you could say that this concept of the perception machine refers to a socio-political condition um, and the automation of vision, imaging, but also to some extent our imagination, our creativity. So that's one line. But also I need to mention that as well as in being a philosopher of media, I'm trying to um exercise my philosophical thinking not just with uh exegesis so analysis of text discussion of philosophers of debates also try and take media seriously and I would like to think I speak to a wider audience than just philosophers I think, uh, I, think I always have kind of people who live with technology in mind and not just a professional uh, narrow circle of people who deal with texts about uh about images, about technology, but I also have an art practice. So the book combines um, my own attempts to think about uh, about philosophy and about uh, of technology and about the perception machine with uh, an attempt to make certain things. So the book contains some image based projects of mine. The preface is already produced in the form of images. But it also contains a couple of films, kind of shorter films, in which I try to think with images and not just about images. So the main threads would be that, thinking about how images produce us, how we produce images, how this creates uh, a, a condition... Today, I'm calling the perception machine and I'm trying to do that both by thinking and writing about it and by making images about it as a way of understanding. Is that an okay summary?
2: What about artificial intelligence? Where did you go there?
1: I was interested in how. Longer technological processes that we've been, obviously, uh, partly developing, partly being part of, uh, have been mobilized both on the level of rhetoric and on the level of technology in the recent AI summer. So AI summer as this kind of return to huge investment in AI, coupled with some successes concerning, you know, at first GANs, then you know, generative AI more broadly. And um uh, i was thinking well what happens then to to uh, our the ways we see the world when things are well, I wanted to say the word optimized, but I want to emphasize that I'm using that word critically. So, this optimization is also sometimes a way of making things worse rather than better, especially for those for whom the optimization of technology becomes a practice of violence and exclusion. So, it could be, you know, if you optimize machine vision, uh, the unjust technology of vision can become even better at being racist, at being violent, at being. Uh, 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 at uh, devouring certain human resources and uh, trans uh, transmitting transmuting them into into data into nourishment for machines so i was basically trying to think what's going on with ai why do we have all this hype and i recognize you know uh, computer vision machine vision are to, you know areas of research within ai or so called ai uh and I was looking at the role of the human eye, human visual operators, how it's undergoing changes now that uh, images are also subject to the vagaries of uh, machine learning algorithms and how our sense of seeing the world and knowing it, and we know in Western epistemology, you know, seeing and knowing where and we there are kind of connected, but also how I was trying to ask a question whether, since AI is not going away anywhere at the moment, could we have better technologies? Could we develop ways of living better with them? And could you know artists, creatives, academics, uh, uh, those who come with different values, if you like, to return to the beginning of our conversation, can they also be at the table seriously, not just to offer a corrective to the already developed practices by big tech, but also to be involved in making kind of tech better from the word go, from the beginning?
0: nbn 50 to get 50%
2: off. What about the evolving role of technology? How has it shaped our visual experiences over time?
1: My own thinking has been informed by kind of philosophers of technology such as you know, Gilbert Simondon and Bernard Stiegler, for whom humans have always been technological beings. So, so it's an expanded understanding of technology in the sense of techne, which is poesis, creation. So humans are technological because we've become with technology, with tools that goes back to, um, to uh, you know, early humans who used uh, stones or, or you know, as first as, as tools, then as weapons, but then also perhaps as mirrors when you know, the stone gets polished and the human, it's obviously, it's a kind of a paleontological legend that gets told by many researchers. But I find it persuasive. So let me run with it. So, you know, a stone gets polished and a human sees themselves in that stone that becomes a mirror. And that enables the development, obviously, over time of consciousness. It allows the human to see themselves And to develop self consciousness, to develop kind of self awareness. So, that moment of reflexivity. So, those, you know, you could say that the early stone was already a technology of vision because it allowed at some point to, you know, to see yourself. It allowed, but also it allowed then for forms of kind of connectivity. So, technologies of vision obviously became, um, you know, in different eras had different technologies of vision and different understandings of where you know of what vision is, of whether we see in the eye, whether we see in the brain, or whether, as you know, much, many branches of contemporary neuroscience and and point out, whether we actually see in the world. So um, there is something very interesting going on around vision and perception. We understand quite a lot about processes occurring in our brain, but how seeing actually happens on an individual level, how that relationship between the human, uh, you know, human mind, human body and the world out there is enacted in us seeing a certain object, it's quite difficult to to grasp and to explain how the specific individual experience of me now seeing, and I'm sitting at a desk now in front of a laptop, of me seeing that laptop as something, and me seeing a copy of my book next to it, emerges as an experience for me. Because that subjective experience is difficult to measure, it's difficult to compare with somebody else's uh, subjective experience. So... It might sound like I'm not talking about technology enough here, but we've got a lot of technologies that are involved in measuring some of these processes, be it on the level of you know, MRI scans to see what happens in our brains, be it on the level of the analysis of kind of visual processes in humans. But there is also something really interesting around this epistemological gap, the knowledge gap about what we can measure and what we can actually know about how we see the world. So. Because we don't actually fully know how humans see the world, and because there are many many more theories that, to me, are quite persuasive about vision seeing being a distributed process, entangled process between humans and the world, the current uh, theories of machine vision seem quite truncated, quite flattened. They assume that information is out there in the world, and an organism or a being, an entity, a machine, just goes and finds it. So, Machines are supposed to, you know, machine vision is supposed to mimic human vision and then do it better. And yet, at the same time, it's using a much narrower, much more truncated, flatter understanding of vision. So at the moment, I'm interested in those assumptions, but I'm also quite suspicious about where it's actually going, about the research in machine vision and where it could go.
2: Are there key arguments about this topic from other authors who also write about human vision
1: key arguments from well that would be you know engaging, say, with the work of uh, theorists, philosophers like Virilio, say who is an important name in the book. Uh, there is also engagement with a different area, which is area of visual culture, and more broadly, art history. People working on you know perception, on art, recognizing that vision is never just a biological process, but also that it is always already cultural. And I'm very much in this camp. I don't go along fully with a scientific conviction that you can identify these base processes. I mean you can do it schematically, but in terms of the actual linearity of processes, I have it very diff- and I've, I find it very difficult to accept that there are prior processes that are just completely pre-cultural that you can strip uh, a strip off our cultural embedding and get to the core of vision which is a cultural, pre-cultural. So I think people writing, you know, in visual culture, in art history, in studies of the image, have done a lot of interesting work around, you know, you can think of people like Nicholas Mirzov, Griselda Pollock, you know, Stuart Hall in cultural studies, who've taught us, or John Berger and ways of seeing, recently remade as machine ways of seeing by colleagues writing for AI and society, very interesting, special issue of the journal. So when people are talking about the Ways of understanding and ways of seeing—they are also kind of bringing in cult- cultural perspectives into that. And then, last but not least, there is—and I haven't mentioned that yet—but it's kind of always in the air. So Even though I seem to be engaged, I do—I am engaging with a lot of um, kind of male philosophers and a certain tradition of male kind of media philosophy, philosophy of technology. I also bring in feminist sensibilities to my way of understanding how we see, how we perceive, and how knowledge is constituted. So there is a trajectory of, kind of feminist writers and thinkers, you know, from Donna Haraway uh, through to Tina Campt and other people writing about images and writing about technology to allow us to also see differently and to ask different questions.
2: And what about the ethical considerations related to AI and photography? Do you mention it?
1: Um, ethical concerns have always been dear to my heart um, And I've been interested in this idea of ethics As a kind of non-normative framework For understanding our relationship with the other uh, The other being human or non-human And then something that can allow us And lead us to towards a kind of better politics Now, so I do und- uh, address ethics throughout the book and you could say that the, the whole reason for writing the book are my ethical concerns, concerns about how to live better in the world and how we can develop frameworks for living better, about who decides what this better is, you know, whose decisions these are. Uh, at the same time, since we are talking about ethics in relation to vision and AI, I must say I'm quite suspicious about the current efforts to develop AI ethics, Every man and their dog jumps on the bandwagon of ethics, which very often to me sounds like a cynical attempt to get big you know, corporations off the hook. They can have an ethicist and they say, oh yes, we've considered ethical issues. So I think ethics is not something that can be added post-factum, that can only arrive as a reparation to a technology or system that's already terrible and really harmful to people. It should be something like uh, a horizon, and a framework for conducting any kind of work any kind of thinking about ourselves in the world I had did this little book um, a few years ago called minimal ethics for the Anthropocene a shout out to my colleagues at open humanities press which publishes books open access it's a kind of non-profit collective. So I published this book with them about minimal ethics and that set out the horizon the philosophical horizon to my way of thinking about ethics which was minimal in the sense that I didn't give people prescriptions on how to live no decalogues, no nothing but it was an attempt to um, present ethics as this foundational framework for doing for living responsible and doing responsible research doing responsible living you could say
2: do you have case studies that you point to
1: Yes, absolutely. There are a number of case studies in the book. Uh, one of them is, for example, is video gaming. Uh, one of the chapters is called How Not to Play Video Games. So when I wasn't a video game player, but I was fascinated as an image maker by the visuality of video games. So I got myself a console that was a you know PlayStation 4 at the time. And I started playing being completely rubbish at it. And what I was interested in, it was the bodily connection between me and the console and the, um, uh, the the whole kind of apparatus that allowed me to navigate on the screen and especially to take photographs in the game. And from there, I developed my own theory of how we move in spaces, virtual and real, and also what role our body plays in perception and in capturing images. Another case study involved me producing a film, taking a well-known film by Chris Marker, uh, a French kind of avant-garde filmmaker who made a famous photo film called La Jetée, set in, uh, kind of, it was made in the 1960s and it was, Set, you know, uh, in the aftermath of World War Three, imaginary World War Three, and I remade Marcus' film with some AI models, with a script written, you know, co-written with, uh, with AI, with the uh, film, the visuals remade with it, and I also offer in the book a reflect. The film is available freely through the book through links and QR codes. Uh, But I also offer a reflection on what it means to to see, to produce culture, to produce films, with AI, while also referring to a number of other artists, thinkers, including Ben Grosser, for example, who did a beautiful project called How Computers Watch Films. Let me see ironically, and yet also trying to reveal the limitations of, of, of this idea that computers do watch films the way we do. So there is that, you know, trying to ask questions about, about computer vision. And there is also another case study, which is called uh, Can you photograph the future? Might seem like a stupid question, but I'm trying to kind of work through um, uh, current discussions in neuroscience uh, and looking at uh, how they understand the mind, the brain uh, and the body and think about the, the, the role of images in their languages and trying to write a different story. And then a final case study I want to share with you. It's called A Feminist with a Drone. I bought, so trying to think about this kind of drone vision, which is a way of this decoupled vision and perception of the world from high in the sky. And I was intrigued by these immensely uh, uh, impressive and beautiful uh, Instagram uh, feeds and YouTube videos of images posted from high quality drones, like four hours of uh, peaceful videos from beautiful parts of the world, completely depopulated, completely without humans, uh, completely unreal. And I was thinking, well, what would it mean to do a counterpoint to this video? So I got myself a kind of toy drone and I tried to do a slightly ironic project in the spirit of, of, you know, people like Donna Haraway or Rosie brigotti playing with that, that drone. It was all a disaster. The drone, you know, I lost the drone. I lost the propellers. The drones lost the capacity to, to, to fly. And I tried to repurpose that loss, constant loss in my attempt to make my own drone video. I tried to develop it Ironically and playfully, but into a serious kind of methodology for what I called loser images, loser images for a planetary microvision. So, again, offering... A counterpoint to these very domineering images of great visions from the sky and of the sky and of cosmos, of space are now coming to us from the likes of, you know, Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk with, you know, Musk's fantasies of us all relocating to Mars. I tried to do something different with a feminist with a drone. So the project is playful, but the critique, I think, is searing so these are there so the book is full of case studies pictures and uh and attempts to say to think with images with projects and not just with kind of philosophical concepts
2: do you engage with the concept of post photography
1: uh yes i do i do absolutely and uh The introduction uh, already uh, engages, recognizes uh, a lot of work by uh, people, you know, from Fred Richin through to Liz Wells and Kevin Robbins and Jean Forkberta, working on that concept uh, on post-photography, which is, um, you know, production of images that resemble photography, but that might be made in other ways that doesn't involve the, you know, the... the, um, it doesn't involve light, for example. Uh, Also, it might involve the photographer not actually taking the image themselves, but rather having other people make images for them. And these people might be just anonymous users on the internet. So I do engage with that concept, but I produce an alternative. An alternative concept I, I offer is an after photography so i i outline what i call a philosophy of after photography because i'm less interested in the object is it photography or is it post photography and i'm more interested in time in a moment in time that we can call a moment of after photography now after photography doesn't mean that we left photography behind it just means that we are always in the aftermath of photography so this idea of after photography is the moment when Photography, as we traditionally knew it, the production of images, maybe in the dark room, on photosensitive paper, is perhaps, if not entirely gone, then limited to museums and some very you know, few professionals uh, or amateurs who are very keen to maintain those older technologies. But the, the photographic spirit, its desire, its view of the world is still with us and it's more intense than ever before. So even though traditional photographic technologies have disappeared, the idea of photography, that the aftermath is still very much, much with us and it's shaping how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we capture it.
2: What about then privacy and surveillance when it comes to AI enhanced photography? Do you write about privacy and surveillance?
1: Um, I do, although not directly as such, but I, these issues have been documented by a number of theorists over decades, starting from you know many people using Foucault's important work on the Panopticon through to scholars such as uh, David Lloyd and others. So there is a lot of work on privacy and surveillance. So these issues do underpin, my concerns, and they are present in the uh, the concept of the perception machine, I'm kind of zooming in on specific cases, if you like, where that surveillance And I'm doing it, for example, through the work of Sophia Noble, who had this very important book called Algorithms of Oppression, where she's talking about technologies of redlining. When that algorithmic surveillance is actually uh, causing uh, racial, social, political injustice and the improvement of technology, algorithmic technology, so-called elimination of bias, actually makes that extractive and violent technology even better, even better at discriminating, at racializing, at policing and at creating injustice. So, yes, that kind of mode of thinking uh, is, is very present. I also offer a discussion of a very interesting counter project by theorists called, uh, by artist Annie Van Vitschian and others called The Recognition Machine, where they try to bring a different sensibility to um, that uh, recognizes voices and faces in excluded from traditional databases and traditional frameworks of knowledge um, to offer to give to to give them agency to expand the the kind of database of justice if you like
2: in what ways does the perception machine um Explore the potential for AI to reinforce biases in photographic representation.
1: Uh, it does that because it the way machine vision works. It's premised on the averaging of an image, so it takes lots of images of uh, you know people from the internet. And uh, if it has an image of a scientist, usually you get a kind of white guy in a white coat looking a certain serious way. If you get an image of a secretary, you get a young woman, often white as well, in a kind of tight outfit. So it reinforces that by averaging images already available, which many of them carry not just bias, but our cultural values, the way many people see the world, many forms of discrimination, many... uh, Uh, stereotypes that are functioning, but also many actual material processes. They are not just stereotypes on the level of language, but they are also material consequences of how certain institutions and and, professions work. Uh, So AI kind of learns from those uh, databases and sets of images, which are already hugely skewed, and reinforces, reproduces them as well. But also the very idea that you know who you can use them. And very often we don't know how AI operates because its mode of operation is a black box. We also don't know which companies use these products. Uh, we don't know who is accountable for the production of those particular data sets. So there are so many unknowns, and very often they are produced, these the results of uh, the use of AI in you know, policing, in surveillance, in uh, making decisions about crime credit for people, making decisions about prediction of behavior, prediction of employees staying in employment are uncontestable in the sense that you can't contest it because A, we don't know how the decision was made by the algorithm. B, you can't challenge the company uh, that is using them, because often they are not telling you they are using it. And see, even if they are telling you, you're in no position through the inequality of power to actually challenge them. So this is how you know it's kind of affecting lots of different layers of society. And of course, I recognise that there are the perception machine is also an aspect that allows a medical profession to analyse data of you know medical scans much more quickly and efficiently it can analyze data and information and pass it without uh, kind of you know human drops in sugar and uh, without our own uh, kind of fantasies and projections. So there could be uses of uh, AI in data analysis, data summary, where humans work with machines to get better information to get at it faster. I say I think medical research medical profession is one field where this could be potentially very beneficial, but all the other issues have also been uh, be accounted for. And work in tandem to counter some of the more pernicious, more dangerous ways it could work.
2: What about authentic human experiences? How does the perception machine navigate those tensions between technology and human connection?
1: Um, well, this is that's a very interesting question. And we would need to ask: what is this authentic human experience? Do we have authentic human experiences without technology, for example? What happens if you are texting with your best friend or with your lover and you're using a technology? Is that an authentic experience? Uh, you know, uh, Umberto Eco said, you can't say I love you to someone without it being already a quotation from films, from lots of different programs where we've seen it so many times. Um, so that sense of authenticity for us in culture is also produced by media, by technology to some extent. It doesn't mean that we can't invest in these moments and obviously we all do, I do and that I give them a certain value and believe that I'm exercising that uh, possibility of authenticity but I also recognize that all our interactions are mediated, they're all technological but what I'm interested in as a scholar as well as a living and breathing human being with a network of other humans who, who matter a lot to me um trying to think about how we can use these technologies better how we can be more accountable for the process of mediation in which we participate in the perception machine
2: is aesthetics a point of interest for you in the perception machine
1: it is in the sense that uh, you know i have an art practice as i mentioned so um Producing, you know, works considered artifacts, as well as looking at other artists' work, as a way of um, thinking through projects and thinking through a different kind of sensorium is kind of important, but aesthetics as, you know, a domain of a kind of sensory experience, uh, uh, and opening something up. So aesthetics as just, you know, the, the generation of, uh, beautiful, or visually attractive, uh, artifacts isn't important, but aesthetics as a way of opening up our experience to other senses, trying to get at issues, uh, in that expanded sensorium sense where we mobilize not just our kind of rational faculties, but our power of, of seeing, of feeling, of sensing uh, in the, and functioning in that expanded mode as, as scholars, as researchers, is something that is very important to me. Absolutely.
2: Can you discuss for us quickly the role of agency and authorship in the context of AI-generated photographic materials?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a obviously a very topical question. Lots of people are talking about this today. And uh, the role of, I mean, agency, as I've already mentioned, I'm kind of coming from a philosophical tradition where I acknowledge that human agency is always partly technological, that it's entangled. <coughs> Excuse me a few years ago i wrote this little book also with open humanities press called ai art what i tried to show that uh, there is a uh that artists have produced work with other uh beings entities um machines for a long time, artists have produced, you know, artworks under the influence of drugs. Uh, you can think of, you know, all the, you know, a lot of kind of impressionists, expressionists signing their their works with how much they've ingested. They produced work in the state of mania, fever. They produced work with kind of drawing machines, drawing robots. So there is a long tradition of artists using, you know, even a kind of drawing. Um, uh, things that, you know, a camera obscura was an early drawing device that allowed people to copy things that appeared on the other side of, of, the, of the camera of the chamber and that were reflected on the wall. So that process of machinic enhancement, machinic creation, co-creation, if you like, has been with us a long time. Of course, now we're experiencing something different because what's changed with AI-generated uh outputs is the intensity, the level, the fact that everyone can do it because their models are easily uh, easily accessible but also this whole kind of smoke and mirror effect around it where there isn't enough reflection on the fact that it's human create you know creations that are feeding the databases of machine learning and a lot of these works are you know taken for free from from the internet without remuneration or recognition but also that it's not really explained. How this happens, and the average user doesn't have enough understanding of you know, kind of neural networks and processes of kind of the vector, vector, later space, things like that, to, to know what happens as part of that magic. So I think this agency has always been co, co- constituted, but there is a lot of, um, uh, say, smoke and mirror, a lot of hype now around how supposedly machines are being kind of fully agentic in the production of artifacts. And I think this is a misstatement.
2: Counter-arguments or critiques. Can you identify any of those critiques or counter-arguments um, presented in the perception machine?
1: Maybe because the book doesn't pre- doesn't proceed through the kind of argument and counter-argument as, as a mode of developing uh it's mode of thinking but there are critiques definitely and the critiques say uh, we've already discussed that the political aspect the socio political aspect that is of concern to me uh the um Question of you know who has the right to be called photographer? Are we all photographers? Are we all artists now? Which is a question you posed to me at the beginning of our conversation, and I decide definitely deal with that. But I also deal with some of the pronouncements and promises around kind of AI. What we get promised, what gets hidden under under some uh, under some of these promises. And I'm looking as well at the, the question of justice, which is obviously very important to me. And it's not AI as such, the technology as such, that is an issue, Although, uh, but it's much more the users to which it gets put and the ownership of those technologies today, that is of, of concern to me.
2: You mentioned a lot of philosophy. Can you discuss the emotional and psychological impact that AI altered images may have on individuals or society as a whole? Um,
1: I think it would be difficult to uh, uh, discuss uh, how they can have an impact on society as a whole, Because that would, you know, probably depends on different groups, different people. However, the very important issue, which again, you yourself raised earlier, is the question of privacy and also the question of authenticity and the question of, you know, who we trust. So the question of trust probably becomes crucial around, uh, you know, what happens with images? Do we lose trust in images? Again, I would like to signal that this problem is not new uh, because, you know, images have been manipulated for a very long time from early collages and photo montages. We can think of Cottingley fairies, like young girls in Yorkshire, uh, producing you know, in the early days of photography, sticking uh, you know, wings on, on dolls and calling them fairies and people believing they were fairies or ghost photography in Victorian times. So images have been manipulated for a long time and people have known that we can manipulate them and we still trust images. Sometimes I ask my students, do you trust images? Do you believe in images? And students say, no. And I'm thinking, well, do you really not? I mean, what about your passport photograph? Do you not believe it's you? Well, I do. When you see your friend's photograph, oh, yes, I do. When your mother sends you an image and say, say, oh, please buy me this in a supermarket, do you believe it? Oh, yes, I do. So I think we all function now in that space where we both believe and don't believe in images. And we've got other mechanisms which are not just purely based on truth, falsehood, criterion, other mechanisms, other systems of recognition to know whether the image is false or not and i think the problem there are now a lot of systems being developed to try to give watermarks to images to verify them to see is it a deep fake is it a real image and of course deep fakes and you know generation of images of, of conflict and you know or reputation or porn that could be you know unreal are of course an issue and but i think only technological solutions are not enough as part of that and I I think the biggest kind of psychological uh, and emotional uh, um, effect around the issue of trust is also to uh, alert people, you know, different groups of people to uh, a broader kind of systemic ways of understanding the world. So it can't just be on the technological level that will be solved. It has to do with our ways of, you know, do we know that, I mean, internet is being flooded by fake images, internet of fake content more broadly, but that's been happening for a long time, even before such a wide implementation of AI. So we need some other extra Technological devices, you no, know, through education, learning, parenting, uh, uh, activist groups, uh, open data organizations that can help us to kind of navigate that landscape.
2: Do you, as an author, address um, uh, the preservation of cultural and artistic artistic traditions in photography?
1: Um. No, not so much in this particular project. No, but I did in non-human photography. I worked, which is, a, say, earlier book, early, uh, uh, preceding the Perception Machine. I talked about working on open access devices, and I produced a book called photo mediations, an open book, which can remediate a tradition of photography and its new developments. And the project is dev- device, d- described there. Um, and it's a collaboration between myself and a lot of, a lot of other colleagues uh, funded by kind of Europeana grant. And it was an attempt to think about data databases, archives, museums of images. And to think about the relationship between old traditional photography and images that, you know, we should preserve or we could preserve or it would be impossible to preserve them all and the new versions uh, of images and ways of imaging the world. So yes, in that project. And there's an online version of that project available. But like you go to www.nonhuman.photography. You can see an earlier kind of version of that book and some of the projects related to it.
2: What insights and perspectives that you present in the Perception Machine? What what can perform or um, inform us of the future developments in the field of photography? So, in other words, what does the future hold? For photography and for your career,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, the future, uh, the future is quite open, and I still I believe that we are. Uh, you know we can still shape it, otherwise I wouldn't be working as an academic, as an artist, as a writer, so I do believe we can shape the future I'm concerned about some of the trends on the photographic level I think the future is moving less from machines or less from individual devices and the quality of those devices and more towards the kind of what some are calling the networked image, as the centre for the study of the image at Southbank University is, a platform image as a, a scholars such as um anna and Adrian mckenzie called it so we are moving towards uh, less kind of beautiful cameras fantastic devices and more the image that travels and connects to other machines also on the level of, of professional level we are not moving towards uh Photographers becoming content providers, so having to be like a channel, you know, a a TV station, a YouTube channel, an influencer. Uh, We are also moving more towards uh, the majority of images not being produced for a human viewer, but rather for databases um, but there is also more and more discussion of the rights of the makers of these images. So that's what the future. So I think the future is moving more towards the, the the what, the content, and less to the technical aspect. But also more broadly, there is a you know philosophical you can say you know question of how we will how will we live in the future, which is shaped by images, certain kinds of images, and what role can we play in making sure that, you know, we live better in that image-driven future. So the question for all of us is, what kinds of images of the present and the future do we create? Do we respond to? What kind of future do we want to imagine with an image, with those kind of photographs we take that are being sent to us? And can can we imagine it better?
2: Any final thoughts for the New Books Network?
1: I would think that it's important to reflect on our own pleasure in taking images. My own research, my own writing, and my own making comes from a fascination with the technology of of, of, image making. So I'm one of those scholars who, both, you know, offers a critique of the modern world we live in, but who is also fascinated by the technologies, by the techniques, by the devices. So, kind of take pleasure in studying the world. Look for openings within the perception machine. Try and tweak it, adjust it to your own purposes, and also build better networks. Built networks that can uh, be a force for uh, a force for good. Sorry, if it sounds banal, uh, but also creating some, you know, what? Willem Flusser, philosopher, these kind of degrees of freedom that can allow us to find openings within within that machine.
2: You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Joanna Zelinska for discussing her new release, The Perception Machine, our photographic future between the eye and AI, out of MIT Press. Subscribe to get more episodes from the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much. And just wanted to say also the book is available open access. Thanks to MIT's Direct to Open, the book can be downloaded for free.